This week on Crossing the Lane Lines. The Jim Crow era is considered one of our nation's darkest times. The so-called separate but equal may have been seen as egalitarian by white folk, but black people knew and lived the real story. Jobs, housing, education, and yes, swimming were far inferior in black neighborhoods. But through it all, black people found a way to rise up. Today, we'll hear from someone who grew up in the segregated Tallahassee, Florida area, went on to an Ivy League school, joined her swim team, and made folks take notice. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. My mentor in swimming, Terry Laughlin, founder of Total Immersion Swimming, once said, If more swimmers of color had the opportunities that white swimmers did during Jim Crow, I suspect that the medal podium at local levels, regionals, nationals, and the Olympics would have looked a lot different. I've often wondered what it must have been like for swimmers of color in the Jim Crow era on the pool deck. What were their dreams, challenges, and triumphs during one of our nation's darkest times? Further, What advice would they have given to young black and brown kids looking to excel in competitive swimming today? Conrad Reddick is a lawyer currently residing in Chicago. Born in Tallahassee, Florida during the Jim Crow era and confined to a segregated school, he nonetheless excelled in age group swimming and was able to become a walk-on at the University of Pennsylvania swim program, where over time he would develop well enough to compete at indoor and outdoor nationals. I spoke with Conrad recently about his swim beginnings, time at Penn, and his advice to black and brown swimmers looking to make their mark. Conrad, take us back to when you first learned to swim. Where did you learn and what prompted you to want to get better at swimming? I learned to swim uh, where I grew up uh, as a youngster in Tallahassee. And uh, at that time, because the entire town and almost everything was segregated, we had the option of splashing in Lake Hall, which was the designated segregated swimming option. I didn't learn to swim there, however. Uh, I didn't learn to swim until a pool opened in the black neighborhood, Robinson True Blood Pool, back in the 1950s. And, of course, it was an opportunity to do something we hadn't uh, had before, so we went to explore it. They offered swim lessons, and... Uh, I was anxious to do it, and my parents were anxious to have me do it, so that's where I learned to swim. So when you first learned how to swim, you learned how to swim during the Jim Crow era, is that correct? We were we're talking about the Jim Crow era in the South, in Tallahassee, Florida, and uh, everything was quite separate at the time, and uh, separate but unequal, as was the want, and uh it wasn't until I was eight or nine that we had a pool that was accessible to us. So I'm going to assume that the pool that you had access to was segregated, right? In keeping with the times and the location, and it was 100% segregated. Uh, and until we had that pool, we had no option other than a dip in the lake. Uh, but once we did have that option, yes, it was also segregated. I'm wondering if you could speak about the challenges that you and your team faced in Florida when you began your competitive swimming with respect to resources and the like during the Jim Crow era. Well, uh, 
by then, uh, by the time I was beginning to do competitive swimming, my family had moved to Fort Lauderdale from Tallahassee. And um, there were stirrings, there were changes underway, but for the most part, uh, things remained segregated. In particular, swimming was still segregated. Um, so the wall between the communities included recreation activities and uh, the pool that we had in the black community there. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that's, that's interesting about that, uh, being in Fort Lauderdale per se, uh, I know you know Bruce Weigel, former director of the Hall of Fame in Fort Lauderdale. Hmm. He, at the time, was participating or swimming or attending national meets at the Hall of Fame pool. And I've talked to him since, and he said, we had no idea there were people swimming on the other side of town. Uh, so uh, that's how separate it was. The competitive piece came because uh, the center of our community then was the local park. The park had a pool, and the pool ran a competitive swimming team. And that was uh, something that interested me, and I uh, joined the team there. Okay, so you're starting to get better as a competitive swimmer as a result of being on this team. I'm wondering if you could talk about how you were getting noticed by colleges like Penn, or for that matter, were you getting noticed by anyone? Uh, no, I wasn't noticed. Uh, that's, that's an interesting thing. Uh, as an adjunct to the point I just made uh, about Bruce being totally ignorant of what was happening with black swimming, that was pretty much the case all over. The only time that black swimmers were mentioned were in the black newspapers or magazines. And uh, even then, it was rare for one city or state to be familiar or acquainted with what was going on in other places. I knew the South Florida area because we had teams in the black communities in Palm Beach, Broward, and Dade counties, so I knew of them. And occasionally we went to a statewide meet or something for uh, competing against black teams in other cities. But uh, it, it, it was unusual to be able to make those connections, and uh, I guess we were lucky to do so. The, the challenges we faced were the usual ones, you know, unequal funding, lack of opportunities, being closed out of a lot of things. In fact, uh, another point that was made to me by people I've talked to in the years since is that uh, as they learned more about what was going on in the black community at the time, they seemed to be surprised at the extent of it and um, speculate that there may have been more black swimming activity back then when there were segregated communities and focal points for that sort of activity than there is now when we have uh, less concentration of the activity. So there's been a decrease in, say, swimming leagues in the HBCUs, uh, in the local communities, um, and, and we're trying to make our way in the broader world. And that, that doesn't give you the chance to develop as smoothly as you can in a more focused neighborhood where you've got time and people supporting you and you don't have to jump in the pool and break records right away, with competitive swimming being as expensive and 
focused on competition as it is. Sometimes it's difficult if you're starting from zero to, uh, to make the elite level. The University of Pennsylvania is one of the nine Ivy League schools and was and still is predominantly white. First of all, how was it for you adjusting going to this school? And further, how was it for you being on the swim team? Let me answer that one after I finish answering your previous question, which I neglected to do. No, I was not noticed. No, I was not recruited to swim at Penn. I was offered a scholarship to Penn, but it wasn't an athletic scholarship. I showed up at the pool. Nobody knew I was coming. Everybody was surprised that I was there. So uh, what were the challenges there? I didn't really feel that uh, there were great challenges at Penn. It was a small group, and uh, they were generally good guys. And for the most part on campus, I didn't encounter any overt hostility, you know, beyond what we call today mini or microaggressions, you know, side eyes and whispering, which was an improvement for the times. But uh, I don't recall any negative reactions from my team members. They were all very privileged people, as are most Ivy Leaguers of that era. But in terms of overt discrimination, I really didn't have a problem that way. Uh, and because in my past, I've been the beneficiary of extraordinary efforts by my parents, teachers, in fact, the whole community, to allow us and my classmates to pursue every possible opportunity. Penn wasn't the only time I'd been the only or one of a few in predominantly white spaces, so that wasn't a big adjustment. And uh, the team members were welcoming. Actually, a diver from the team is still one of my oldest friends. But I, I agree that uh, the uniqueness of my presence was obvious and noticed. That did lead to a few questions and some interviews, but from outside the team. What were those situations from outside the team? Were those from fellow students or folks in the local community? Uh, fellow students, uh, some newspapers, you know, just, a, gee, what are you doing here? How did you get here? You know, those sort of questions. Now, when you arrived at Penn, this is something that I read about in an article that was done on you years ago, you stated that you were the number six breaststroker on your team. But over the course of three years, or four years, excuse me, something really remarkable happened with your swimming. Can you talk about that a well, I'm bit, not please? sure it was number six. I'm not sure we had that many breaststrokers on the team. I was probably second or third on the freshman team because in that era, this is way before your time, there were freshman teams and then varsity teams in all NCAA sports. But uh, I, I think the change for me and for most of the people on our team came after my freshman year. We got a new coach, George Breen, who had been a world record holder in his day. And uh, the entire atmosphere around the program and the level of coaching that we got and the training quality the quality intensity of training uh, got bumped up several notches, and I think that that made a large difference in improving where we were. As I look back, I suspect that I probably benefited more from that than others on the team because I had not had that, lane, that uh, level of coaching before. Others had, so I made perhaps a larger jump than some others did, 
and you know by my senior year I'd qualified and competed in nationals in my best event but overall I think the coaching and the support from George uh, probably made a big difference. Describe for our audience what it was like for you to compete at both the indoor and outdoor nationals. Well, uh, let's see. It's been a long time, and I actually have trouble keeping track of what meets I went to and didn't. Uh, I competed at a lot of regional qualifying meets, and uh, George and I were generally the only two going on those trips. Uh, Not everybody on our team qualified for nationals or for the uh, regional championships. And traveling with him was always an interesting uh, experience, lots of stories there. But uh, going to nationals, I'd say, were uh, great experiences. Having earned the right to walk on the pool deck with some of the world's best swimmers was very satisfying. And, you know, a little bit of stargazing there. I think the year I went to nationals, uh, Mark Spitz was hanging around, winning everything. Um, And uh, it was very valuable, a very valuable experience. I mean, it certainly gives you a level of confidence that uh, you can do anything. You can compete with anybody if you uh, just go after it. And uh, I didn't... uh, uh, come back for the load of medals or championships of that sort. In fact, I think I missed what uh, what you now call the B final by about a hundredth of a second. And I joked with my coach George that had I known, I wouldn't have cut my fingernails the night before. I could have uh, made a finals. <laughs> but uh, the experience, I think, was valuable, very valuable to me. USA Swimming's African-American membership is 1.6%. People are still being turned away at swimming pools, harassed by teammates, parents, and swim officials. In your opinion, what do we need to do to begin leveling the field so black and brown kids can be able to learn to swim and possibly improve in order that they can compete? Uh, I'll give you a two-part answer. Uh, One, uh, the real answer is the big problem. And two, I think the fact that people are encountering these problems is itself a sign of progress. And I'll be back up and and explain those. Obviously, the real answer is to extinguish bigoted behavior in society at large, including swimming. And that's not really something you, you can approach overall from the swim deck. But it's a part of the, uh, a larger program and you push in all directions all the time. The second part um, competing more and more as as swimmers of color are doing, I think is itself a sign of progress. And uh, decades of watching the nation's evolving racial stratification and attitude tells me or suggests to me, this is my, the lesson I took, the behavior that, that you just described um, in competitive swimming I think it's a sign that swimmers of color are succeeding, competing more and more successfully despite the opposition. And uh, people who harbor racial prejudices seem to act more overtly as they're confronted by the increasing successes of individuals from the communities they disfavor. So what can we as swimmers do or what can today's swimmers do? I'm confident 
just from the fact that they are showing up in these places and succeeding, that they have protection, guidance, and encouragement uh, from their parents and others in their support systems. And uh, I think the the fact that they continue to show up and move in higher levels is a good thing. Could it be better? Certainly. Uh, increasing awareness and increasing activity around these issues in the swimming community, including things like your own podcast and uh Bruce Weigel's efforts at the Hall of Fame and a lot of just historical awareness and consciousness raising, educating people about the past and about other communities, a lot of which is just going on uh, in the email flow these days among people in the swimming community. All of those things are, are very, very good. And I think for the swimmers coming up, uh, knowing about and connecting with other competitive swimmers of color uh, provides important support uh, because they are still likely to be isolated as the only or one of a few in historically privileged spaces. And uh, <clears throat> I have to say, it, it's not a desirable endpoint, but I think it's valuable to remember that today, one's mere presence on the pool deck is no longer either unlawful or absolutely forbidden, as it was back in my day. Now, the old discomforts and new anxieties among the swimming community, especially one's competitors, as swimmers of color appear, compete, and succeed, uh, that kind of pushback says to me that they are recognizing that these young swimmers are someone to be reckoned with. Someone recently asked me, why do I do a podcast on black swimmers? That's a fair question. And I always answer the same way. I want folks to know about what we've accomplished. People think that we just recently learned how to swim and have no idea of our rich swimming history that dates back to 1445. People, and when I say people, I'm mostly referring to white folk, have no idea about Pauline Jackson, an amazing open water marathon swimmer from the 20s, or Walter Johnson, also a marathoner, and also from that same period. They've never heard of Willis Hanks, who attempted to swim the English Channel on five separate occasions in the 50s, the last where he came within a couple of miles from shore. Everyone thinks that Anthony Irvin, Maritza McClendon, Colin Jones, and Simone Manuel were the first black folk to win medals at the Olympics. But they weren't. Not even close. The first was Enif Brigitte, of the Netherlands back in 1976. Many may have heard of Jim Ellis from the movie Pride and his phenomenal coaching success at PDR in Philadelphia. But have they ever heard of Michael Norman, Nick Askew, Nate Harding, or Noel Singleton, all successful elite black coaches that have been churning out age group and collegiate swimmers for quite some time? If you haven't heard of these remarkable men and women, then you now understand why I do this podcast and will continue to let our accomplishments be recognized, our dreams fulfilled, 
and our voices heard. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines, signing off.